Hello, welcome along to this week's podcast. Um, we've got some podcast correspondence. Okay. Additional correspondence, Robbie. It's Robbie and I in for Simon and Mark again this week. Um, but these people don't seem to know. Andrew Sharman, he says, whoever's driving the boat this week. But do you know what? If there's one thing that we've established over the time that we've been covering this programme during the summer, yeah. it's that we've got from the, the mouth of Luke Besson himself the answer to that question. We, we now do. know who was driving the we boat. We do. We do know. In fact, we could. We, we should get Simon and Mark to replay you that clip on next week's show. Uh, we all know, this is from Andrew, Cars 3 has received a yeah, review over here, but there is a major element to this film that UK audiences and critics just don't understand. Cars 3 is a vanity project. The result of whoever at Pixar is a major fan of NASCAR racing. Most people know that the original Cars movie was inspired by NASCAR, which is America's most popular form of motorsport by a long way. Cars 3 takes the theme to a whole new level. The main storyline of older cars being replaced by the next gen is a direct take from what is actually happening in NASCAR for real. And there are countless NASCAR references in the movie that will only make sense to those involved in or major fans of the sport. Cars 3 is a NASCAR film, and so fans of NASCAR in the UK, there are more of us than you might think, love it. You can easily spot us in screenings. We're the ones chuckling at points where no one else does. Tinky tonk and all that stuff. Regards, Andrew. You NASCAR fan? No. Okay. But I am a Cars 3 fan, actually, and I think mm. the um, the racing sequences in it are beautifully done. I love the thing that Pixar are driving at now, where the backgrounds are becoming more and more photoreal in their it's, films or in some of their films. The animation's are unbelievable. But then the characters on those backgrounds are becoming more and more cartoony. So it's almost like you have this incredible clash between photorealism and really sort of almost freehand crayon sketched uh, cartoony characters, yeah. aren't it? Uh, another email, which is quite interesting, from Jim Sangler, who says, Dear Dempsey Makepeace, much better. It's with great dismay and a heavy heart I'm writing to you for some advice. This week, Love Film announced they'd be closing later in the year and I'm sure a lot of fellow Wittertainees also value the service of the huge range of different genres of films they offer. On the relatively few occasions I visit the cinema, it's usually with a teenage son in tow and tends to feature men in capes, explosions and sound turned up to 11 taste stupid. Uh, this leaves me wondering or wondering how I will now catch those obscure, less mainstream recommendations I jot down when the good Doctor or Robbie start waxing lyrical. I've used a few of the streaming services, but they tend to have a limited variety. And short of subscribing to all of them or buying each film on iTunes, I'm wondering how I'll now keep up. I'm going to ask you, but I would like to direct your attention to the BFI's player which I think has got a fantastic selection of films. They have got a very good selection. But Love Film, th th that email, I couldn't agree more. The catalogue on Love Film was extraordinarily comprehensive. And also the system by which you subscribed meant that you were your kind of best self when choosing what to watch because you because you were lining stuff up in advance. It meant yeah. you would tick stuff off the list that you'd always intended to see but never got around to. Whereas I find if you just come in, slump on the sofa and put on a streaming service, it's just, oh, what's there? Yeah. What can I watch now? Yeah, it's a different decision. There's no there's it? no forward planning involved really in the same way. Do you know if there's anything going to replace it at all? Or? No, I don't think so. I think it's just been folded into Amazon Prime, I think. Shame. Uh, right, listen, we've got more to come uh, on the show. In fact, if you stay tuned, you'll hear the full chat with Stanley Tucci. But prior to that, if you did listen to the show, I promised you a little extra um, bit with Stanley Tucci. Now, I had the pleasure of chatting to him. And I love when you start rolling on interviews before the official start of the interview because sometimes you get the best bits. Uh, and this is a really nice example of that. Stanley came in to uh, 
broadcasting house here in London to have a chat in a little studio that has about 20 TV screens on it, one of which was showing Bargain Hunt. And unbeknown to me, Stanley quite clearly knows his Bargain Hunt stuff. Jeez, that oh. is horrible. Okay. I mean, out of all the stuff in there, that's what she <laughs> yeah. picks? Are you that's, kidding? That's what you get? Right 25 then. pounds for that? <laughs> Oh, you should definitely go on Bargain yeah, Hunt. Look at how ugly. Oh, my God. This woman has perfect, terrible taste. <laughs> you get a real insight what the rest of her house looks like yeah. just from that Ooh, one thing. I don't want to know. I love how he described it as perfect, terrible taste as well. <laughs> it was this kind of weird kind of, um, you know, like Murano glass. These yes. kind of coloured. It was kind of one of these. I couldn't actually see what it was properly, but it was this kind of weird... I think it was an animal of some sort. It may sort. have been a clown. A lot of Murano glasses clown. There we go. It must have been one of these. Obviously not a fan, but that is, I would love to see Stanley Tucci on Bargain Hunt. That would, How good would that be? Um, right, here is this week's show. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. It's Robbie and Edith in for Mark and Simon. We are here with you until four o'clock this afternoon. How are you this week? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing, Edith? Smiles on your face before we start the show. Is that to hide two hours of... Of smiles to mask the pain and torment. Well, <laughs> not, quite, not quite, not quite. Just for being in a room with me for two hours. At the end, we'll look. It's not so much you, Edith, as it's the... Well, content. who knows? Let's who knows? This could be bucking a trend that has been in place since time immemorial. This could be a great week at the end of the summer for new movie releases. We'll see. Or, or it might not. Well, listen, we've got plenty of films to get through this we week. We have. Uh, what are we going to be looking at? Uh, we're talking about Final Portrait, The Hitman's Bodyguard, An Inconvenient Sequel, Everything, Everything, The Dark Tower and The Odyssey. And we also have a conversation with a very special guest. We do. Stanley Tucci, speaking not as an actor for once, but uh, as a director and writer of Final Portrait. You can hear my conversation with him, followed by Robbie's review in about half an hour's time. And if you want to join in with the show, please do get in touch with us. Loads of correspondence already, but we love to hear from you. Be that in email form, mail at bbc.co.uk, uh, or you can text us on 85058. You'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. Uh, right, we are, before we start with the top 10, we're going to do, we've done, this is becoming a bit of a regular thing for us where we sort of slide out of the top 10 to talk about a film that we <laughs> want to talk about. Can I just add that there's still no Captain Underpants in the top 10? gutted. It's very sad. I think gutted. it's at 12 this week. There's only so many times I can go and see that film in a week. Um, at number <laughs> it's at number 12 thanks to you. Yeah, just me and my family. Um, at number 15 then, this is great um, because the, the kind of average of this is, is great news for a, a little film like Yes, story. right. It's a ghost story at number 15 which was my favourite film of last week by quite some distance and, and certainly one of if not the best film of the summer. Um the, it's, it's landed at number 15. It was only released on 89 screens around the country, but wow. the screen average was £1,500 per screen. So that uh, is a stronger average than half of the films in the top 10. So where this film has been playing, it has connected with an audience pretty well. And considering it's a small film, but also a very, very strange one, I think that bodes really well. So I hope it will hang around. And I would urge you, you know, if you're at all even moderately interested in this film, see it with an audience, see it on the big screen. It's this beautiful, scary and profound film about time and grief and love that mm -hmm. tackles some enormous philosophical ideas by not doing much more than standing Casey Affleck in the corner of a room and putting a sheet over his head. Somehow, this is uh, this is a great way in order to explore these big, difficult, eternal themes. It's It's sort of for me, halfway between um, a heartbreaking Pixar film 
and a gallery installation. It's just very, very accessible and at the same time very, very strange. It's about this guy, uh, who one half of a married couple who perishes very early in the film in, in a car accident and then he watches life continue on without him uh, first in terms of how his wife, who's played by Rooney Mara, acclimatises to his absence and then through some other events as well, which are probably best left yes. unspoiled. But I gather we've had some correspondence. We've on. had an, an amazing amount of correspondence. Thank you so much. Uh, Edith Norby, I doubt that a ghost story will make it into the top 10 this week, but I hope you'll still find time for at least a brief discussion uh, of this masterpiece. I went to it largely on your recommendation and was so glad I did. It has haunted and stayed with me since in a way I've not experienced before. I came out of the film and spent the rest of the evening reading reviews, watching interviews with the director, I woke the next morning thinking about the film and reliving scenes and continued to do so whilst driving to work. Now, this is not something I do. I'm not sure a film such as this should be dissected too much, but although the extended still camera shots feel uncomfortable at times, perhaps because we don't expect the portrayal of things happening as they would in real time in films, they are so worthwhile. The pie scene has had a lot of attention, but the lengthy shot of M and C simply lying in bed together near the start was just as powerful for me, affection express simply. Robbie said he thought it was one of the best films of the year. Maybe it needs time for the dust to settle, but I'd rate it as one of the best films of the century. Simon Dewsbury. <gasps> you just made my body tingle by that review. Amazing. A, a ringing endorsement. Lovely. Good. Um, dear subs, I've just seen a ghost story and I really don't know what to say. It was exceptional. I've never watched a film that does so much with so little. It's beautiful, thought-provoking and literally haunting. Any film that can have a scene, like the pie scene, which is as heartbreaking as it is simple, has to be a masterpiece. It's nice to see a film that is in some ways so complicated but has no exposition, but you completely understand the rules and how this world works. I don't think I've come out of the cinema so sad for a long time, but this isn't a negative. Any film that can elicit genuine emotions in me is always a huge plus. Easily one of the best films of the year. Kind regards, Paul Stagg. Perhaps we should explain what the pie scene is for people who didn't hear the, the show last week. Mm-hmm. Um, the pie scene is a scene in which Rooney Mara eats a pie and that's literally all that happens. But the way in which... The whole happens, pie. The whole pie and nothing but the pie. Can I add it was sweet and not savoury as well? I did ask the director. Right, right. The director is David Lowry who made Ain't It Body Sa- Ain't Them Body Saints and Pete's Dragon as well, the Disney um, remake of that from last year. This is such a strange kind of detour for his career but completely wonderful and, yeah. and I'm so glad he, he he's done it. But the pie scene... Um, a, a friend, I think in fact it might be the estate agent who's trying to sell the house after Casey Affleck's character dies um, she drops off um, a chocolate tart on the table in order for Rooney Mara's character to have something to eat while she's obviously beside herself with grief she comes home, picks up the pie and eats it while Casey Affleck's ghost watches her eat Just it watches. and while we watch her eat it Just um, watching it's the idea that it's it's kind of strange and awkward at first, and then the you, sound of the spoon right, in the exactly. bottom of the tin, and the kind of case and... very peaceful atmosphere, afternoon sunlight coming through the window, mm. and it gives you a sense of it, it gets through the awkwardness and through the the bizarreness of watching someone eat in real time, and it becomes about how time passes when you're not around to witness it, and the fact it goes on and on and on, it goes somewhere incredibly profound and there's this slow build of emotion that's then beautifully, uh, it kind of breaks like a wave in the very next scene um, with this wonderful, wonderful score by Daniel Hart. This very, very smart, beautifully orchestrated moment where the ghost kind of almost makes contact with her across, you know, Mm. across the the life-death divide. And it's kind of, you, you would never think you could be so moved 
in such a profound and fundamental way by just watching someone eat pudding. And yet... <laughs> and yet. Dear Crackle and Pop, that's my favourite one yet. After seeing a ghost story last night at my nearest faceless multiplex, I emerged asking... What was that? But also, more importantly, did I like that? After sitting for many wistful hours, staring into distant landscapes and making thinking noises. Mm. I'm still not sure what to make of this film. The comparisons to Manchester by the Sea are obvious and I still consider this former Affleck work to be the far superior, yet something about the bed-sheeted man won't leave my consciousness. I expect this will be the sort of film that completely divides audiences. I'm sure there are great things to admire here. It just didn't quite, quite click for me. Best wishes from a cynical student, Nathan, 20, North London. I think the Manchester yeah. by the Sea comparison is really interesting because what Casey Affleck does in that film is a much more conventional idea yeah, of great totally. screen acting. Obviously, he won an Oscar for it, See, so the, the industry more. agrees. Well, you do. <laughs> yeah, well, quite, but it's that kind of brando, brooding, yeah. mumbling stuff that works very well in cinema. We all know it works very well in cinema, and that's, that's kind of what he does, and he does it really well. But in a ghost story, it's, it's more because he's obscured by the sheet for 90% of the film. It's to do with gesture and to do with stance and to do with stillness. And these are not really qualities we associate with screen acting at all. It's more like uh, masked theatre or mime or some kind of religious ritual. And the film uh, acknowledges that this is all going on in the background. And it is a very, very strange performance style. And um, But it's just, it's exactly what this role needs. You know, the ghost isn't supposed to be flying around the place going, woo yeah. He's just there absorbing what's going on, experiencing time pass as you're experiencing time pass with him. It's not Casper. Uh, let's get into the top 10 then, shall we? Let's. Oh, and I know you really want to at number 10. It's the Nut Job 2 Nutty by Nature. Now, this. Put the colon. Nut Job 2 colon, sorry, naughty, <laughs> nutty by. Oh, you've thrown me now. The Nut Job 2 is at number 10. And I think the fact that it's landed at number 10, it just reinforces the question we asked about it last week, which is who wants this film? Who asked for it? I don't understand. The, no one got in touch about it, so no one by the sounds of it. No one was moved to write in about The Nut Job 2. Um, interestingly, in the United States, it set a record um, for um, the, the worst ever box office take for a film released in more than 4,000 screens. Um, the way this was reported by Cartoon Brew, an excellent website about the animation business, and um, the, the way they put it was it broke an all-time record for people not seeing a film. <laughs> Interestingly, the previous record holder of that title was the Emoji Movie. Um, so The Nut Job 2 has just snatched defeat oh. from the jaws of a, probably an even worse film on balance, but it's, it's, it's swept in there. In the, in the UK, it's done slightly better, but it's, I think it's made something like £670 per screen, so you know, much, much lower than a ghost story, although the release has been much wider. It is just strange, annoying woodland creatures tearing down a fairground. That's the story of the film. Um, they are abrasive, they're noisy, they are entirely unlikable. It's like watching a tantrum in a supermarket. Can you imagine if the Emoji movie and Nut Job colon Nutty by Nature had an animated baby movie? It would no. be... No, no, and I don't want to. <laughs> well, let's move on to number nine. This has been here for quite a number of weeks now. Yes, War for, War for the, Planet. the Planet of the Apes, five weeks and counting. It's just approaching 20 million, which is really good. Um, it, it's not as popular as the last film, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, I think was the highest performing... Uh, film in this trilogy by quite some distance. This hasn't approached it, but you know, we're reaching the end of the summer holidays now. It's had a very good run. Yeah. 
Uh, number eight, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Which hasn't had quite a, as good a run. It's a Luke Besson sci-fi adventure, um, which we decided last week was like swimming through space trifle. I don't think personally that description will ever be bettered. Well, That's a little bit eurocentric, but there we are. Oh, no, no, go for it, go for it, please. This is does, it, it in, does it involve trifle or some kind of... It, it, well, have a listen. Okay. Uh, this is from Jay Patterson. Uh, hi, James. Dear Alpha and Omega. I've never taken acid while sitting in a bath filled with warm bubble gum while riding a roller coaster. But having watched Valerian, I'm now pretty got a pretty good idea of what it would feel like. That's better. It's That's good. it. That's it. That's unimprovable. <laughs> I went to Valerian uh, with apprehension that it would be all style and no substance, but spent the film with a non-stop grin on my face and came out as giddy as a goat. Eye-popping visuals, memorable characters, groundbreaking ideas, seamless CGI. Please, can you ask all sciencey people to hurry up and build Alpha so I can go live there? Failing that, can you ask Luke Besson to make a sequel? There we go. Can you ask Luke Besson to make... That was Luke Besson calling to say, yes, you can. I think the thing is with this film, like The Fifth Element before it, is that people who are on its wavelength are having a great time with it. And it's not for everyone. You know, it is incredibly, at the same time, a weird sort of corny throwback to the, the 60s, 70s comics on which it was based, the Valerian and Laureline um, comic strips that Luke Besson yeah. grew up reading. It's also incredibly forward-looking and futuristic, densely packed with CG aliens and strange environments. And, the, you know, the pleasure for me of this film is barreling through these environments at some speed with two glamorous young lead uh, cast members, Cara Delevingne and Dane DeHaan. It's, do you think sometimes with... Um, I don't know, because Luke Besson is, is such an accomplished filmmaker that sometimes people... The expectations are really high, but also... You can think too much about films from that type of director where all he really wants you to do is submerge yourself in this world and kind of let it entertain you. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely what he's going for and I think it's it's what he's achieved. And and the, the nitpicking with Valerian that other people have been, you know, people that haven't been convinced on it has always been, you know, how can we take this seriously? And the answer is I don't think you're supposed to. Okay, great. Uh, go and see it. It's a number eight. Uh, number seven, Spider-Man Homecoming. Yep, didn't like it. Only person in the world who didn't like it. Don't <laughs> care. <laughs> oh, we're rattling through this today. Oh, no prisoners today. I can't wait till we get onto the actual reviews. Uh, number six, Girls Trip. I have a, I have a nice... Well, I have a review for it. I'm not going to say if it's nice or not. I like the introduction. Okay. Hello, beard emoji and thistle emoji, which there are none of, but there should be. They're very good. <laughs> I haven't, nor will I see the emoji movie, as I dislike seeing them on my generic fruit-based device every day, let alone on the big screen. However, having unlimited viewings of Hollywood's latest, I do tend to see everything and everything. My latest outing being Girls Trip, which, which to my surprise was worse than I expected. Oosh. Admittedly, I'm not the core demographic, but a true female hangover I could have enjoyed. Unfortunately, this is not what I got. Simply superficial, puerile garbage, which itself never wanted to end. Two hours easily could have been 90 minutes. How many times do we need Ryan to procrastinate over the interminable final plot point? Four times? Oh, many it would appear. Upon receiving the standard How Was Your Last Cinema Trip email, I was disappointed that I could rate Girls Trip no lower than a one star. Brutal. Oh, from London, brutal. But look, I think there is a place for superficial puerile garbage when you're in the mood <laughs> for it. And the, what's interesting about Girls Trip is it has connected with an audience. It's been around for three weeks now. It's down a very slender 28% on last week's take. So obviously, you know, word of mouth is quite good. Yeah. What's also interesting about this 
is looking back over the summer, there hasn't really been an alternative. There hasn't been another hangover style, you know, um, what in America is called an R-rated comedy. Yeah. It would almost certainly land on 15, but something raunchy, something for, you know, groups of friends to go out and see. There was Baywatch at the start of the summer, which was very bad. Uh, there was Snatched, which was also very bad. Um, there was Chips. We're not even going to go there. Uh, the Big Sick, well, it was a comedy, but it kind of skewed more romantic and it skewed more indie and twiddly, twiddly, twiddly. And it's not really comparable. And then you have, I think next week, there's a film called pa- Rough Night. Do you know what's coming? Patty Cakes. And is that a kind of a raunchy yes. comedy thing? Okay. Yeah, okay. I so- think it's a kind of rap raunch comedy. It's like a com- female comedy, eight mile type thing, but funnier than eight mile because eight mile wasn't really funny. But yeah, that I didn't fine. remember laughing that much during <laughs> eight mile, I have to say. But the thing is, Girl Strip has kind of been out there by itself doing what it does. And yeah. perhaps that's another reason it's really caught on. I have to say, generally, I thought it was very funny. I think some of the jokes are overextended. They do flog some things a little bit too far, but it's, it's you know, generally I laugh throughout. Pass the six laugh test, pass the ten laugh test. Wow. And, you know, that's that's fine. Okay, it's at number six, um, rattling through this top ten. And number five is Despicable Me 3, which seems to be still sucking up all money from animated rivals, including, as we mentioned earlier, Captain Underpants, Cars 3 as well. Uh, even The Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature, colon, hasn't been enough to drag people away from Despicable Me 3. It's been around for seven weeks now, um, and last week, this animated franchise crossed the, um, it, it took the record for most lucrative animated franchise ever created from Shrek, which was the previous uh, holder How of that dare title. They. And weirdly, if you look down the chart, you've got Despicable Me at the top, then Shrek, then Ice Age, and then Madagascar. So these are all series that kind of, once they have worked out what an audience wants from them, they just pound away at it and they give people this, you know, broadly speaking, the same stuff over and over and over again. And it's only in position five when you get down there that you find Toy Story, that, which is that, a series I that... I believe that. Well, it starts with a great idea, but then it develops it in interesting ways and it takes, you know, a number of years between Toy Story films for the next one to show up. The gap between two and three was enormous, I think. And then four is still obviously uh, yet to come. But the thing about Despicable Me is it it's worked out what people are getting out of that franchise, what they're enjoying. And it's come back every, you know, either every year or every two years with more of the same. And it's working. Uh, obviously, it's number five, seven weeks since that was released. Long time. Um, yeah. At number four, do you even want to say the words? It is the Emoji Movie, which is a cultural equivalent of arson. And, you know, as we <laughs> landed on last week, it's 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 like Inside Out crossed with David Cronenberg's Videodrome if it had been made by the evil corporation in David Cronenberg's Videodrome. It's been around for two weeks now. Um, it's taken £6.1 million in the UK, which is outperforming its box office take in the US. So obviously it's speaking to British audiences in a way it is not speaking to Americans, which I think says some very sad things about us as a country. <laughs> Hold on, I've got some correspondence. Actually, no, I don't. Uh, right, number three then, uh, Atomic Blonde, which I do have some correspondence. Yes, which was sadly not the Charlize Theron-led John Wick that I was hoping for. But let's see if the correspondence disagrees. Um, here we go. Dear second bassoon and second fiddle, oh, I'd rather be lead cowbell, please, if that's all right. As Mark always says, a cinema experience is a contextual one. Last night I went to see Atomic Blonde and it ticked all the boxes I could hope for. Fantastic 80s soundtrack and retro's 80s feel, amazing fight scenes and almost a touch of early Luc Besson. However, I made a tragic error. 
Earlier that day, I had taken my son and his friend to see Dunkirk, which was an excellent, as excellent as everyone says, and gave a real sense of how important every life was as we followed the struggle of young soldiers to just try and make it home. Unfortunately, this by contrast made the violence and loss of life in AB feel like a tragic waste. And even though I knew it was based on a graphic novel, I couldn't fully immerse myself in the AB world. I did also feel that unlike Wonder Woman, which held your gaze with the lead character's gaze, I felt at times AB had you staring at the lead from the outside and at times this felt a little voyeuristic. I will watch it again at a later date and who knows, I may enjoy the fun escapism of it all on a second watch. Yes, right. Well, look, I think the voyeurism is completely deliberate on this. I mean, what was so refreshing about Wonder Woman was that the uh, the female lead was framed as a male lead would normally be, whereas in an atomic blonde, you have Charlize Theron kind of emerging from a bath full of ice cubes at the very start. A lot of scenes back in the apartment, she's wearing lingerie for no real reason other than it's Charlize Theron wearing lingerie, and that's just, you know... Hey, girls, have got to wear lingerie, Bobby. Yeah, but then, you know, not with a camera necessarily, <laughs> you know, sort of ogling them up and down. But th- this is the, the film is all about these surface pleasures. You know, in her apartment in the film... It's lit by vivid pink and blue neon strips. And that's purely so you get this incredible clash of colour tones on her skin. And it just heightens the, the the way in which you're supposed to, to meet this film is right on the surface. And you're supposed to enjoy in the same way sort of ogling her in her house as you are supposed to enjoy her ogling... <laughs> as you're supposed to ogle her taking out millions of bad guys up and down this enormous tower block. That's just the kind of film that it is. Mm. For me, the, the problem with it is, is it doesn't do anything particularly interesting with that. You're kind of watching her being an incredible movie star and the film spends a lot of the time trying to keep up with her. It doesn't necessarily give her enough interesting stuff to do. And as well, you know, if you look at um, a film like Mission Impossible, which came up last week when we were talking about um, Atomic Blonde yeah. um, on, on the show, the original Brian De Palma Mission Impossible film, that's one in which he equates spy work and voyeurism very, very, you know, directly with each other. De Palma is obviously an enormously voyeuristic filmmaker. He loves cameras trailing after people, stalking them, spying on them through little chinks in the, you know, doors and through keyholes and all sorts of things. And so he draws that kind of the pleasure that you will get from watching spy work on screen is that kind of voyeuristic, slightly sleazy pleasure. And Atomic Blonde has kind of registered that, you sense, on some kind of superficial level, but it doesn't quite know what to do with it in the same way that De Palma does. Uh, A really nice email here from a gentleman by the name of Declan Hannigan. Dear Blue Neon and Pink Neon, what a surprise I had while listening to your podcast last week to hear my own voice. Luckily, my mum was on hand to hear it too, visiting me in Budapest, where I live, and where some of Atomic Blonde was filmed. Not only am I a huge entertainment fan, but I also played the KGB driver who picks up Charlie's throne at the airport. I know you guys had some problems with the film, but I have to say that it was a pleasure to work on. It's not often in any profession that you get to work with people at the top of their game, and there were quite a few working on this movie. From cast to makeup to costume to camera to sound, but of course the stunt crew had to be singled out. They were absolutely amazing only very professional but unbelievably pleasant and helpful for people who could easily break me in half before breakfast. Keep up the good work while the doctors are away. Uh, And then one more from Sophia Preston. I wondered whether the whole film was an exploration of or play on that final line about sampling in music. Ironic homage or just theft, I paraphrase. Is the whole film incorporating samples from other films? Some quotations as in Stalker, some reference like Casablanca, some more genetic references, plus doubtless many that I missed. It would explain why it just doesn't really work as a plot. Like so many not-so-successful postmodern works, it has forgotten that it also needs to work on the surface level and hold together. A sense of humour might have helped as well. 
maybe it does take itself a wee bit serious, do you think? It does. I would say that. I would agree with that. <laughs> right. Annabelle Creation. Yes. At number two, two um, they're really pleased that it's done this well. You know, it's just, it's, it's a horror franchise movie, but it is a very meticulously built ghost train ride. And it's, it, it's something that scared me throughout. It is much, much better than the previous Annabelle spin-off. And, uh, you know, the the director who made a film called Lights Out a couple of years ago yeah. um, is just someone who's really good at orchestrating these, um, you know, the technical side of horror. He knows how to leave empty space in the frame. He knows how to have a door click open at exactly the right moment. He knows how to build uh, to a jump scare and use silence in a way that doesn't feel cheap. So for me, you know, in the cinema... I'm not going to reach the end of the year and think, well, Annabelle Creation was absolutely one of the best things I saw this year. But during those two hours in the cinema, I was completely um, swept up in it. But a lot of people have been swept up to go and see it. And this is a nice email from uh, Michelle Lee from Bromley in South London. As most members of the congregation, I've been a long-term avid listener, but have never felt compelled enough to put finger to keyboard and write in. That was until Tuesday, after viewing of Annabelle Creation at my local world of Sydney. Never before have I experienced such a carnival atmosphere in a cinema screening. And I use the word carnival very deliberately because I'm sure some people had a great time. However, I did not. I believe the reason I did not have as good a time as others is because I was there to watch a film while others were there for a night out. Now, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but what we had on that evening is a room full of people so far on the night out spectrum that it was impossible to appreciate the film with any coherence. Mark has alluded to this in the past. Horror films seem to attract a type of audience who seem determined to make a much noise as much noise as possible. I'm convinced some punters are not actually there to watch the film. Rather, they can't quite wait for the quiet bang as they believe the jump or jolt this generates gives them licence to then talk, announce to their friends how scared they just were, discuss, discuss what just happened and wait or tell what they think will happen next. This inevitably leads to other people thinking this type of behaviour is acceptable and pretty soon you have a room full of people openly talking, playing on their phones and one woman a few seats from me openly watching YouTube videos. (laughs) Halfway through, two ushers were called in but had minimal impact on which by that point was a jump scare seeking mob. I'm sure others have experienced the same frustration and I don't know what the solution is. For me, I think horror films will now have to be enjoyed at unsociable hours or from the comfort of my living room. That was a bit like when I went to watch the Fast and Furious films. Well, it was hilarious. Just people joining in. and Yeah. yeah. Woo! Whooping and cheering and on YouTube and stuff like that. So I remember going to see The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in Seattle. And of all the films you wouldn't think would attract a kind of whooping mob... Oh, that's the American audience, though. Yeah, they just loved Starsky it. Starsky and Hutch had the same on. thing. When the beavers came on, people went absolutely berserk. It was extraordinary. <laughs> Uh, right, number one. We've, number one, we've not got still, anything else to say about it because it's, it's still so good. Dunkirk. It is Robbie Collin and Edith Bowman in for Simon and Mark on Five Live. Stanley Tucci has a new film out this week, but he's not in it. He is the director and the writer. It's called Final Portrait. Yes, and it's based on a book called A Giacometti Portrait, written by the art critic James Lord, who in 1964 sat for a portrait for the Swiss artist and sculptor Alberto Giacometti. Now, even if you don't recognise the name Alberto Giacometti, you almost certainly know his work. Um, It was, I mean, he's best known for these isolated, elongated, wiry, knobbly figures, which were kind of part of that post-war anxiety, that sense of isolation people had. You know, they didn't know in which direction the world was going. They felt alone and this really Giacometti's work really, really spoke to that um, that sense that people had of the time that, you know, things were just very, very difficult and uncertain. Um, the the idea originally for this portrait was that um, James Lord was going to drop by the studio in Paris for a few hours, maybe an afternoon, mm-hmm. 
and Giacometti was going to knock out a quick picture of him. Um, three weeks later, he was still there. The picture was nowhere near being finished. And so the idea is that by looking at this snapshot of one relatively minor painting being produced, uh, you're able to glean something about this particular moment in art history and also something about the relationship between these two men and also something about the relationship between artists and their subjects in general. Uh, and we'll hear my chat with Stanley Tucci, its writer and director, after this clip, which features Army Hammer, who plays James Lord, and playing Alberto Giacometti, Geoffrey Roche. You have the head of a brute. Gee, thanks. Yeah. You look like a real thug. Thank you. If I was to paint you as I see you now and a policeman was to see this painting, you'd be thrown in jail like that. Well, then perhaps we shouldn't continue. No, no, no. It's all right, because I'll never be able to paint you as I see you. You sure? Yes, of course. It's impossible. Uh, that was a clip from Final Portrait. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by its writer and director, Stanley Tucci. This is the first time we've chatted with you of you being in this role of writer-director and yeah. not an actor. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Do you enjoy it more? <laughs> um, but yeah, as I get older, yeah, I do. I do, because you don't have to wait in your trailer for somebody to come and say, okay, we're ready for you now. You, know? uh, you get to control the time. Tell me a little bit about this film. Um, how would you describe it? Uh, it's a story of, of one guy painting a picture of another guy, which I know sounds incredibly gripping, but... No, it's it to me. It's a it's a, it's a really interesting story about the creative process and about one of the greatest artists of the twentieth century. It's a real lovely exploration in friendship as well. I think because yeah. these are two unlikely people to be friends. Yeah, but the it's wonderful to watch it unfold. Yeah, oh, and good. stretched. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> By one side of it. Yeah, because Giacometti was a very particular personality, and and Lord was another. Lord was a sort of very buttoned up waspy kind of guy and Giacometti was the opposite. I read that you first came across this book that Lord wrote when you were in your 20s. Is that right? Yeah. And what was it about the book that, that stayed with you or, or, I don't know, ignited something in you? Well, I've always been interested in art. My dad is an art teacher, retired art teacher and artist. And, you know, I learned a lot from him and I was always fascinated by, by art and also the creative process. Um, so when I graduated from uh, the conservatory that I went to, it was an acting conservatory. I started. I took some art classes, and I thought I really wanted to go into art instead of acting. But then I thought I'll be even more broke, <laughs> so I better not do that. So I spent a lot of time, and still do, reading about art and going to museums and galleries and so on and so forth, and collecting a, a bit. And I'm still fascinated by it. When I came across this book, it, to me, it articulated the sort of trials and tribulations of, of the creative process better than any book I'd ever read. You see your dad in it? I see my dad in it to a certain extent, but I never felt my dad was frustrated with his, his work. I find that I'm frustrated with my work. <laughs> my father seemed to do it very, quite effortlessly. Um, so, the, no, I think I, uh, I, think I see the, the, the positive aspects of my dad and, uh, of work in there. But I, I, I think also it's... It's to me. It, it's it's a book that that people can read whether they want to be visual artists or actors or musicians or whatever it is they want to be. It has everything you you need in there to 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 understand what it is to create something. 
So that was in your 20s, and just a few years later, you've made the film. Yes. Based yes, on, on yes. that book that yes, has I'm stuck just, with you. That's right. I'm just in my late 20s now, <laughs> um, although I look 56. It's incredible. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it took a long time to sort of decide to do it mm -hmm. and then to get the rights to it and then to write it and then about a decade to get the money for it. Did he say no to start with our red? Yeah, James Lord said no. I wrote him a letter, and I saved all our correspondence. Oh, it's fun. all on those old airmail letters, you know, mm -hmm. the, that thin, crinkly paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote on those, and that's how we corresponded for a while. Wow. And he was finally coming to New York, and he said, all right, well, let's meet. And he had met, he was very friendly with James Ivory, whom I had known a bit. And James Ivory said to him, he said, oh, he said, well, I'm going to meet this guy, Stanley Tucci. And James Ivory said, well, you give Mr. Tucci whatever he wants. And... <laughs> <laughs> James Lord did, and then we became friendly, and he was uh, he was very helpful. He died he died in two thousand and nine. Do you think he would have liked the film? I actually think he would have liked the film. Yeah, I do. It's wonderful casting in this film. Um, but before we talk about the actors that are in it, was there ever a point where you were going to be in it? I thought about it, but then I thought the film would be better served if I wasn't in it, and I just watched it. And then Gail, who produced it, wanted me then to play Diego. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't want to. I don't want to, I don't want to put on makeup anymore. I, don't want to, I just want to come in and focus on the film, and the film will be stronger for it. Is it a hard decision to make to not be in it? No, not really. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> One no, less job to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but is this the first film you've directed that you've not been in? Yes. And was it different? And it's did so you... different, and it's such a pleasure, <laughs> because you really are can focus on the thing as a whole. I mean, sometimes they say if you want a job done right, you do it yourself. But I, I didn't need to do that because I, I had the wonderful Jeffrey Rush and Tony Shalhoub and Army, and you know, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that casting because let's take Jeffrey to start with as as your your lead character, and he is just wonderful to watch. This slightly almost mad scientist. Yeah. Who has self doubt and yeah. uh, and just really incredible to watch that character throughout the film and the relationships that he does and he almost ruins. But coming on the decision of it being Jeffrey, how did you come to that? Well, it, it was a sort of the most logical choice. I mean, he has physical characteristics that are so like Giacometti, and he's a great actor, and he's funny, um, and so it just kind of made sense. Obviously, we had to change his look qu quite a bit because Giacometti was built very differently than Jeffrey was uh, had was in terrible condition. You know, we added hair to Jeffrey and made it a little more wild and aged him like crazy, mm -hmm. patted his shoulders, patted his jaw, changed his nose, all wow. that stuff. So there was a, there's a lot there that Jeffrey, that we had to start with, but then we really had to change this. And when you really see a picture of Jeffrey by himself, when he would take his makeup off, he was... You had no idea that this was the person who would just play Giacometti. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting. He's just great. He's just a great actor. I, I did read a, a little bit where you said that if, you, if there was anyone, you know, alive or dead that you could have cast in this film, it would have been the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Which I All three of them. <laughs> yeah. one well, there's cheaper that way. They came as a... A package. <laughs> came as a package, yeah. If you were to get Chico on his own, it was very expensive. <laughs> and if you were to hire none of them, it would be really expensive anyway. But that tells you, I think, for people who are, you know, maybe going to see the film, about the tone of the film, because it's very funny. And yeah. the pair of them as well, together, are just It's funny. It's I mean, and the thing is, the book is funny. Mm. Uh, to me, the book is funny. And, and Giacometti was very funny. If you read any of his stuff and you hear stories about him that, 
you know, he was very boisterous when he went out and drinking and <clears throat> and his, one of his best friends was Samuel Beckett. Now, Samuel Beckett was really funny. To me, that uh, uh, Giacometti is often associated with sort of existential angst in, in his work. Mm. But yes, there is that, like in Beckett, but they're also incredibly funny. So the two go hand in hand. They're not at all, I suppose, yes, they're contradictory, but, but they make the two sides of the same coin. And with Jeffrey and Army as well. Yeah, and exactly. How you play it in that, that yeah. film. It's, was Army the obvious choice for you as well? No, there were other people who were attached beforehand. And I'll say that, and Army knows that. Mm. But uh, it took so long to get it <laughs> done that, you know. <laughs> they aged. Be- they became too old, yes. <laughs> they died. They didn't no, fit the blazer they, yeah, anymore. No, they, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it would have been too much time in makeup. But casting a film is always hard because mm. you need people of a certain status, particularly a small film. You need people of a certain status who make the investors and distributors happy. And luckily, and you try to find the person who is fits that, but mm-hmm. also who can act uh, and who's right for the role. So it's a very difficult thing. But Army was perfect in every way and also just probably the nicest person you'll ever meet. Mm. There's some, some little just one-liners in the film as well that are... I want to talk to you about writing the script as well, but where he says, um, well, you could have been a, a spy. And he's like, I am a spy. Yeah. It's just little yeah, yeah. little things like that. How easy was it for you to write the script? Because this book was was you know was very influential on you and yeah. was everything in the book? No, um um not everything. No. Mm. Like that scene was not. That scene was a different scene, um originally. And on uh, the day we came to shoot that scene, they rehearsed it and I said, you know, I hate this scene. <laughs> it was about Tony talking about watching his brother and father paint in the studio when they were young and it was whole sort of maudlin, I don't know, it was just bad. And I said, you know what, I have an idea for a scene. It's, we'll, we'll do it tomorrow. And they were like, what are you talking about? I said, don't worry about it. It's like three lines. Don't worry about it. And I gave them that scene that that you just said about. Because in the book, Giacometti is reading, um, the spy who came in from the call, but I just made it Diego was reading the book yeah. instead. And he says, I'm reading this book. The spy come, comes in he says, you know. He said, well, what's it about? He says, it's about a spy who comes in from the cold. <laughs> he goes, and then looks at him, he says, you could be a spy. And he says, I am a spy. And it just came to me one day when we were shooting, and I thought, that's the scene. That's a much more interesting scene than um, a story about the past um, that we don't, we don't need it. Mm-hmm. We don't need it. We've been talking about art. We've been talking about, let's talk about something completely different. And, and the idea that he is a spy that they're both little kind of spies a <laughs> yeah. little bit. But I think Lord in particular was a spy. You know, you know, as a as a as someone who who came into artist studios, Giacometti studio, Picasso studio, uh Baltus's studio, he spent a lot of time with these people and he's a bit of a spy. <laughs> he also worked in the army intelligence, which I think is really interesting that that was where he came out of came out of army intelligence in World War 2 and ended up staying in Paris. And nearly got broke by sitting for an artist. For <laughs> yeah, right, days. exactly, yeah. We've got some lovely listener questions, if you wouldn't mind answering yeah, yeah. a few of those. Faisal says, I'm a huge admirer of Big Night and consider it to be one of the most significant American independent films. Are there any plans for a restoration, a possible cinematic re-release or uh, a Criterion Collection edition for devoted fans? Well, that is so lovely. Uh, I have no, I, I, you know, I don't even, we don't, we're not even sure if a print of the film exists anymore there may be one print someplace wow. i'm not quite sure 
Because it was a small movie, mm. and I think people weren't really planning on it becoming as widely accepted or loved as it, as it is. So we have no plans for any of that, <laughs> unfortunately. Whoever has the print, though, please do get yeah, in touch. Yeah, please send it over, <laughs> yeah. can. Mark Thomas said, did all the smile, I love this question, did all the smiling as Caesar Flickerman heart? <laughs> yes. <laughs> as did the pretend facial surgery. Because what we did, obviously, I didn't have facial surgery. We <laughs> taped my head back oh my God. with tape and face back with tape. So you're like that for about 12 to 15 hours. That was painful. Andy says, is there a biopic yet to be made to whom uh, you would give your right arm to play? Groucho Marx. Fantastic. Mm. To direct as well? No. 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 <laughs> just one job, please. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about a couple of things that you have coming up as well, um, where you're playing Jack L. Warner. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Is that all done? It's done. It, it came out in America, and it's coming it's out here. Still to go. Soon, soon, I've heard yeah. a few, seen a new few headlines. It's called yeah. Feud? Feud, yeah. Susan Sarandon, Jessica Lange, and Alfred Molina. Oh, it was awfully fun. As Betty Davis. Yeah. And around that whole time of filming. Uh, filming uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Wow. Yeah. And then the Children's Act as well. Yes. You've got a lot of things. When you look at what's coming up, there's there's so much there. But what about next for directing? I don't know. I've, I've adapted a book called The City of Women. Uh, so with Gail Egan, uh, who produced this, I'm hoping to get that off the ground. That takes place in Berlin at the end of World War II. And uh, we follow a woman through, and lots of women, uh, but this one woman in particular through um, the sort of the 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 crumbling of of Berlin and and all that that infrastructure, but also this that false uh, uh, social and ideological infrastructure that existed um, in Berlin. So it's written. It is written. It is written, and now it's just a matter of making it. <laughs> um, I look forward to chatting to you about that. Thank you so much for your time, Stanley. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Thank you so much. Now, we both spent time with him over the last couple of weeks. Yes. He's a joy, isn't Not he? socially, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Big, the yeah. big admirer of the Tooch. And can I just say, the idea of him playing Groucho Marx just fills me with total joy. Do it! It would be so great to see. You know, the second film that he made uh, as a director was called The Imposters. It had elements of slapstick comedy in it. And he is just so good at it. So, Final portrait, what do you reckon? Well, look... I've spoken about uh, artist biopics, genius biopics on this programme a number of times, whenever there's, there's one out. Um, they, they're all built on the assumption, or most of them, 99.9% .9 are built on the assumption that the story of the artist's life is at least as interesting as the work that they produce. Now, in the case of something like Amadeus, uh, the Milos Forman film about Mozart, um, that is true. And so you have this incredible sort of elaborate romp about his, his life and how, the, the circumstances in which the work is produced. When it's not true you kind of end up with a film that resembles a soap opera with an impersonation at the heart of it. And that, yeah. that that's happening, you know, even in not just artist biopics, but things like Theory of Everything, for example. You have this very technically impressive performance at, at the centre of it where an actor is pretending to be someone that you already know, already have ideas about. Mm -hmm. But the life story just becomes this soap opera um, storyline, you know, highs, lows, emotional all you know, left, right, and centre, whatever's going on, just a, a muddle of different bits and pieces from throughout their life. That is categorically not the kind of film that Final Portrait is. It is a film about the artistic process, and it's a film about how uh, an artist relates to their subject and how that strange relationship can generate something that is beautiful and worthwhile. And what I love about it is that it starts out by tricking you into thinking it's going to be a conventional artist biopic because you have 
army hammer sweeping through the streets of Paris, bustling, you know, people carrying flowers around, croissants on trays, accordion music. And here we are in Paris and oh, we're setting the scene. And then he arrives at Giacometti's studio and opens the door and the music just snaps, cuts out immediately. Giacometti is shuffling around in this kind of weird grey boxy dungeon. Dusty room. Coughing and spluttering, fiddling with, you know, this sculpture that's not finished here, this sculpture that's not finished here, looking at a little bust of something that he's made with his hand, not very pleased about it, throws it on the pile, you know, fiddles about with this. um, And all these strange characters milling around him. And instantly you're kind of brought into this very confined, very tight world of where, you know, the very, very circumscribed area where this film is going to play out. Now, when I saw this, I kind of thought the the, um, the production designer on the film is James uh, Merrifield. And I saw this incredible studio environment that he's built up, which most of the, the film does take place in. Mm. But well, this is very, very clever here because what they've done is they've recreated the psyche of Giacometti in this three-dimensional space and we're wandering <laughs> into Giacometti's mind. Anyway, after I saw the film, Googled Giacometti Studio and it is basically a totally exact reproduction mm-hmm. of what the place is like. This was what the inside of this artist's head was like. It was also what the immediate area surrounding him was like. And you had these strange faces looming out at all angles. There's this enormous um, bust in the middle of the, the studio, which is his uh, brother Diego's head, played by Tony Shalhoub, who sort of stands there, both Tony Shalhoub's character and the bust itself, just silently surveying what's going on in this mad area. I love his brother. Struggles, and it's it's great. And, you know, Tony Shalhoub, who played uh, Primo, the chef, in Big Night, is just this kind of genial, um, consoling presence in the middle of this very spiky and fraught atmosphere um, between the two men. So and and the, the the film is really interested in that ecosystem. You know who were the influences on Giacometti? How did he create this uh, this environment where he could produce his art? You have Sylvie Testud as his wife, uh, Clémence Poesy as uh, Caroline, who was this young woman he was cruising with, who became his muse, um, and Tony Shalhoub, of course, who's hanging around there as well. And it's shot by Danny Cohen, who um, who was the cinematographer on The King's Speech and on Room as well, um, the the Brie Larson film from, yeah, from recently. And he. Um, is just now, I think, the go-to guy when you've got four walls and two faces to find hundreds upon hundreds of interesting angles, you know, ways to kind of explore the relationship between two characters in a very small space and always make it fresh. It would have been very, very easy to film Final Portrait as a play, you know, because you have this stage-like space, you have two main characters and occasional walk-on extra parts. Um, and that's all there is to it. We, there's much, much more to be said about this film, so we should come back to it after the news later. Yeah, definitely, because there's a thing that we talked about last week with Tom of Finland with regards to when it's a small film, but how you can do things brilliantly and subtly that I think Stanley Tucci definitely does in this film. That they yes, do with right, Tom and Finland. it's the fact that just focusing on this small, small portion of his life allows you to get right into the, specific, the specificity of what was going on then. Good word. Um, right then, we are, we've got loads more to get through this afternoon. Uh, still to come, another out of film conversations, including back to Final Portrait, but yep. also... Also The Hitman's Bodyguard, an inconvenient sequel, Everything, Everything, The Dark Tower and The Odyssey. Uh, and please do keep getting in touch. Let us know uh, what you've seen, what your thoughts are on email, uh, mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us. Text number is, as usual, 85058. Let's get back to Final Portrait because there's more to say on this. Yes, right. We have already covered a lot, but I should say all of what we've talked about, all of that is in orbit around this fantastic central performance by Geoffrey Rush Mm. as Giacometti. And it's, it's an incredible performance because it's simultaneously larger than life 
and totally plausible. And if you look at the very, very detailed work that he does while he's at the canvas, the way in which his eyes will flick left and right to catch how Army Hammer exactly looks and to try and reproduce that with his brushwork, that's all very closely studied. But then he is able to tap into the very strange, prickly comedy of the role too. Now, in the interview, Stanley Tucci mentioned... Uh, that Samuel Beckett was a friend of Giacometti and they were kind of artistic fellow travellers, both deeply rooted in existentialism, you know, this kind of mid-century torment. Yeah. And there's, what's interesting about the, the way in which Giacometti paints the portrait is that he first of all tells, um, tells James Lord that he doesn't think he'll ever be able to paint him as he sees him, but that it also doesn't matter but because with the rise of photography, portrait painting has kind of become redundant. So there's never a cause for anyone to finish a portrait uh, anymore. And for that reason, portraits have somehow become unfinishable. So this idea that the two men are trapped in this room day after day after day is very, very like Beckett. It's very like waiting for Godot when you have Vladimir and Estragon just sitting there waiting for something that will never show up. In fact, um, Giacometti worked on the 1961 revival of Waiting for Godot in Paris. Beckett loved his work. And so he said, you know, I want you to design uh, the tree as the centrepiece for this production. And so they they worked uh, on and on. I mean, you can imagine what a Giacometti tree would look like, incredibly spindly, elongated, maybe like three leaves on the whole thing (laughs) and covered in plaster. And, you know, night after night, he'd be slaving over this tree. Beckett would come to the studio to help him. And I think the night before the performance was due to, to, to begin, the director showed up at the studio and Beckett and Giacometti were both stood there looking at this tree. And he said, well, you know, we, we need this. You know, we, we need to, to take this to the theatre now. Is it finished? And the two men looked at each other and said, we don't know. And that's very much the sense that, that you get in this film, yeah. is that any artistic endeavour, you will never know quite when it's finished or not. And um, it, it's kind of that sort of absurd sense of humour that it has. It's, it's like there's a line from um, Beckett play Endgame, nothing is funnier than unhappiness. And that's very much Giacometti is sort of almost delighted that his life is so depressing. Yeah. Um, or there's the great Mel Brooks line where he says, um, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Uh, comedy is when you fall down an open sewer and die. And it's this idea that, you know, <laughs> very, very small indignities can be just as bad and just as simultaneously just as funny as absolutely terrible things. It, it's kind of, in the way it approaches creativity, to me, it felt like a cousin to Big Night, which was um, Tucci's first film as director, yeah. I think his best. I would urge you, if, you, you know, if you're at all interested in Big Night, somehow, I think it's on a streaming service, even if the print is lost, there are ways, ways uh, in which Yeah, to there see. are ways. Um, so it's, it's very, very worth seeing. Definitely. But this, this is a really, you know, as someone who is allergic to <laughs> 99% of artistic biopics, this one just delighted me, really tickled me, and it leaves you with a lot to chew over afterwards. Well, like last week when we were talking about Tom from Finland and how this film kind of, I mean, it felt like he was alive for like 200 years in terms of the scope and the length that they covered his his, his life from, you know. And also in terms of the 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 makeup was one thing that we that I touched on last week about how kind of it just didn't didn't feel right yes. uh, when they aged him. Um, this is a, a you know, Jeffrey Rush has, has had a transformation to, to portray Giacometti in this film in terms of his face in particular but you can never you can't tell it just looks perfect it looks brilliant it's so well done and just that attention to detail has been done so much better in this film in comparable to something like yeah in comparison to many of them and that's because it's zeroed in on this very relatively short space of time you know the one thing about concentrating on one month in the life of is you don't actually need to change that facial makeup from scene to scene because it's the same people don't age you know dramatically within that period of time so you can get it right once 
rather than having to adapt from scene to scene to scene that all looks a little bit unconvincing. There we go. Final portrait, uh, Stanley Tucci. Right, shall we, uh, one of the two really big releases this week, shall we do our first of those? Yes, The Hitman's Bodyguard. I have correspondence. Okay, well, let's... Let's save that for, 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 for after. Save it for after okay, yeah. Because um, it is coming towards the end of the summer holiday film season. This is a time when distributors can traditionally offload some quite, some, some quite tricky uh, films that they might not know where to place. Now, sometimes those films can be uh, like Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle a couple of years ago, mm. where it wasn't quite a conventional blockbuster. It wasn't quite a spy movie. It kind of felt in between a lot of different things and they don't know quite what to do with it. And I think, anyway, that, I think, is a great film. It just was a typical end of summer film, and it just—it's it, a difficult one where we can actually know exactly who who the audience is for it. So sometimes you get a bit of a hidden gem like that. Sometimes you get a film like The Hitman's Bodyguard. Now this is Ooh. directed by a, a guy called Patrick Hughes, who made a um, a western, a kind of a noir tinged western called Red Hill, uh, with Ryan Quantum a number of years ago, which was very good. And then he made The Expendables Three, which really wasn't. And um, this is basically a Midnight Run with Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. And the, the thing about Midnight Run was it, it came as part of this um, this trend of buddy movies, which was very, very much what Hollywood was doing at that time. But the, the trick with Midnight Run is that the two guys in it weren't really buddies at all. You know, you had Robert De Niro trying to bring in Charles Grodin's character um, on this epic road trip, and they would just bicker, bicker, bicker all the way. Um, this is, the premise is very, very similar Samuel L. Jackson is the hitman um, who has decisive evidence um, to be used in a war crimes tribunal against this Belarusian um, tyrant who's played by Gary Oldman because, of course, what? it's played by Gary Oldman. Why is who Gary else would Oldman be in by? it? Well, I mean, you know, it's just, it's Gary Oldman doing the Gary Oldman villain role again. Um, and Ryan Reynolds is the bodyguard who's charged with getting Samuel L. Jackson um, from Manchester, strangely, in one piece to The Hague so he can deliver this, uh, uh, this, this kind of killer blow of evidence before the end of the trial. Now, the hook for the comic tension between them is that you have Samuel L. Jackson as a guy who kills bad people for a living and Ryan Reynolds as a guy who protects bad people for a living. So which one of the, you know, which one of those paths is the more honourable? Obviously, both totally disreputable, but one arguably more disreputable than the other. Also, Samuel L. Jackson's character is shown to have a heart of gold because his wife, um, who's played by Sam Salma Hayek, and is even more foul-mouthed than he is, is currently locked up in prison, and they do share some little sweetheart moments on the phone, like this one in the clip. Oh, baby, baby, it's me. Oh. I just want to hear your voice. There. You heard my voice. How you doing? Made a shank yet? What for? It's a prison, baby. You gotta protect yourself. It's a Dutch prison, Darius. What are they gonna do, beat me with a clog? Oh, you got a view at least? Just a whole lot of horny Dutch buildings. There's one with a huge clock on it. Like, that's what I need right now. Do they have the flowers you love? Um, irises? Uh, they come from there, right? Tulips, Darius. What kind of a husband doesn't remember his wife's favorite flowers? You never remember anything. What's her anniversary? Oh, dear. So it's hard to really know where to, to start with this. Salma Hayek, you know, the idea of Salma Hayek being this incredibly abrasive, foul-mouthed character, it's kind of theoretically you can imagine a film in which that would be funny. The, mm -hmm. the problem with Hitman's Bodyguard is it just flogs the joke to death within seconds and then returns to over and over and over again. So you have effectively Salma Hayek doing one thing repeatedly throughout the film. And that's basically what everyone's doing. Gary Oldman is doing the Gary Oldman villain role over and over and over again. Ryan Reynolds is basically playing Deadpool, motormouthing his way through every scene. He's this kind of, you know, 
Um, he was once had this triple A status as a bodyguard. He was one of the best bodyguards in the world. Then this uh, job went wrong and he dropped down to the bottom of the tree again. And he's very, very anxious about this and very annoyed about it. And he returns to it again and again and again, constantly in this fast-talking, uh, naggy Deadpool voice. Samuel L. Jackson, again, is just playing a standard-issue Samuel L. Jackson character who swears a lot and kills people indiscriminately. Um, there's a running joke that he swears so much, and there's a certain swear word which, obviously, I'm not going to use now. Mm-hmm. But he uses it so much that Ryan Reynolds complains that it's it stopped being funny. And that's actually true. That's what happens in the film because it's just one piece of shtick that is rehearsed ad infinitum. Well, even that clip you just played there in terms of that kind of cultural stereotypes, it's like within, what, 10 seconds, it kind of Dutch, you'd mention clogs and tulips. Yes, right, exactly, exactly. And actually, the setting of the film is very odd because it begins in Manchester. There is then a detour to Coventry, of all places, um, where there's this enormous kind of gun battle in the city centre where the uh, Belarusian mob attack uh, the the convoy that's bringing Samuel L. Jackson to the Hague. Now, you know, not that there's anything wrong with Coventry. You know, there's no reason films shouldn't be set in Coventry. But if they are set in Coventry, you would expect there would be a a reason for them. Maybe a production-related reason, tax breaks or something, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it's not actually real Coventry. They mocked up Coventry in London for some reason, just in order to have this scene set in Coventry. You know, there's there's no St Mary's Guildhall there, there's no uh, West Orchard Shopping Centre. It's just a weird street, maybe there's a bistro on it or something. There's a big gun battle, but it's Coventry anyway. So part of the film takes place in Coventry. Then they move to Amsterdam, and there's a big chase through the the canals with speedboats and things. And the thing is, once you've seen... In a summer, we've seen a film like Baby Driver. Yeah. And to have seen car chases and gunplay just done so stylishly and done with such impeccable technique, to return to a film where people are just running around, screaming, you know, loosing off bullets, you can't take, keep track of anything that's going on. You really, really feel, you know, it's not just bad. It's 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 hard to take after you've enjoyed it being done so well by a director like Edgar Wright. Um, another crucial problem with it is the tone and the, the, it kind of works at this nihilistic flippancy where absolutely nothing matters in the film. You know, people can be electrocuted, thrown through windows and it's, it's all fine. They are basically cartoon characters. Now, for a film to pull off that tone, it needs to work very, very hard. And it's something that Matthew Vaughan did really well in Kick-Ass and also to an extent in Kingsman, although yeah. Kingsman pushed it so far. There, there's an argument which I will accept on a couple of points that it doesn't actually quite pull it off. But there's the, the famous centrepiece fight scene in Kingsman where you have Colin Firth in the, the kind of lunatic uh, Westboro Baptist Church-style yeah. thing in, in, in the United States. And basically what the film is saying is we are going to load this scene in a way that makes what we are going to show you, and it's going to be horrendous, but we're going to load it in a way that makes it as acceptable as possible. So first of all, everyone in this scene is a bloodthirsty lunatic. Secondly, Colin Firth is under the control of some mind control device. Uh, thirdly, he has to do it in, or, you know, in order to survive, otherwise he'll be torn to pieces. Yeah. But even having excused it on all those levels, while you're watching it, the film still wants to make you wince and cringe at what you're seeing because it's just so visceral and unpleasant. Now, basically, without doing any of that clever build-up to that scene, that's what the hitman's bodyguard just kind of plunges into that horribleness from the start and returns to over and over and over again. It's not prepared to do the groundwork and it can't justify where it goes with it. It's just really horrible, smirky, off-putty, blech. <laughs> blech. 
Right, let's get some correspondence. We've got quite a yes, lot, Yes, this, this has been out for, I think, at least a day. OK. So we've got people s- have seen it. We've yeah. got a lot. Okay. Uh, Amelia in Glasgow, uh, looking for a light movie to watch to take off some of the stress of the week. My sister and I went to a preview of Hitman's Bodyguard this week in our local world of Sydney. Something we won't be able to do uh, very often anymore as she's moving to London. Neither of us went in with particularly high expectations, expecting mostly silly action and a couple of laughs, and that's exactly what we got. Samuel L. Jackson played Samuel L. Jackson. Ryan Reynolds did his usual thing of being slightly funny but full of action but overall it was a big pile of yeah there was a lot of influence from Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle like the feud between the two protagonists and the sometimes jazzy soundtrack during action scenes but a comparison can't really be made as that was a much better film on all accounts which you just said yes, did you, right, read, did you I, read this? I thought I was the only person <laughs> in the world who liked Man from Uncle I love The Man from good, Uncle good. on the other hand during the film I realised that part of it is filmed in my hometown of Sofia Bulgaria and only realised it when I saw an old friend appearing in the cast in the particularly negative role of the preacher murderer. Not a spoiler. Good day and thank you. <laughs> the racial politics of the film are oh, you know, dear. politely, you could say they're blunt. Okay, uh, Phil says, a live action Tom and Jerry cartoon, although it's out with the frying pans, in with the firearms and the kind of bad language that would make Fred Quimby's jaw drop. Good fun though. Tinkety tonk and even more down with the Nazis than ever, old fruit. Uh, Adam Cousins, will there be a more contrived film this year. I stopped trying when a mobile phone rang and the screen displayed Interpol, just in case you were really stupid and just couldn't work it out. The second hour was okay apart from the overuse of Melon Farmer. It has some good cheap laughs. Deadpool without the suit and Sam L. Jackson being Sam L. Jackson, just as well I find Ryan Reynolds funny. Amsterdam Tourist Board will be delighted with the coverage. Uh, Gordon Henderson. Hi, Gordon. I went to see The Hitman's Bodyguard yesterday and I'm struggling to put into words suitable for an afternoon radio show just how much I disliked it. Ryan Reynolds basically played Deadpool again without a mask. On its own, this would be fine. Deadpool was very enjoyable and Reynolds has good screen presence. Samuel L. Jackson plays Samuel L. Jackson. The script was clearly either written with him in mind or rewritten once he signed on as they find new and exciting ways to shoehorn in the Samuel L. Jackson catchphrase. Again, I've no real problem with this on its own. Gary Oldman plays a man clearly there for the paycheck, which I'm also okay with. His career is long and distinguished enough that he's earned the right to do this now and again. And then the film combines the three. It's like the morning after a house party where you want cereal, but there's no milk left. Only some Guinness. You like both those things. So put the two of them together, asking yourself, how bad can it be? What follows is a harsh lesson in worse than the sum of its parts as you leave with a bad taste in your mouth and a journey home wondering what you are even thinking about. That's such a specific metaphor. It seems to spring from so life experience. Yeah. Uh, Kath in Coventry. Oh, wow. OK, OK. okay. So here we are. The On the Ground View. Formulaic. Overly violent action film where every kill is followed by a wise crack. Admittedly, Sam Jackson and Ryan Reynolds are watchable. There are a few laughs and Sam Hayek is enjoying herself in a performance turned up to 11. Cartoonish violence and CGI heavy car chases and gun battle scenes odd after the every punch leaves a bruise attitude and ambitious cinematography of Atomic Blonde. Judging by the sniggering teenage boys in my screening, it'll have multiplex appeal, but desperately unambitious. And final one from Ian Patterson in Oxford. I went to a preview screening of The Hitman's Bodyguard at my local world of Sydney on Tuesday. From a trailer which suggests an uneven, an uneven movie that fails to balance its action and comedy on a uh, hackened premise comes a final product which lives up to that expectation perfectly. This feels like a shut up 
but what action uh, that struck gold when the casting director was able to call in a couple of favours, subsequently showing Mr Butler the door. Ryan Reynolds and Sam Jackson are good value as always, but having them repeatedly conduct semi-improvised bickering in a car is no consolation for the mechanical nature of the rest of the screenplay. The Hitman's Bodyguards is distracting fun for the duration of its overlong runtime, but it's ultimately forgettable. When it comes to the standout action flick of the summer season with an A-list cast, gleefully stylish violence and a jukebox soundtrack, that crown belongs to Atomic Blonde. And I am done with correspondence Wow, Hitman's Bodyguard. That was not a ringing endorsement from anyone, I don't think. But the Jared Butler thing, you can imagine him being in this film. In fact, he was in another Midnight Run ripoff called, I think, The Bounty Hunter. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Which was also terrible. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's done that. He can now move on to make other films. He's in something called um, Geostorm, I think, later this year, which is... Jared, Jared Butler fighting weather. Jared Butler fighting weather. I can't, what is left I can't wait. Um, right, let's move on. Maybe he needs to be in an inconvenient sequel. You know he could save weather. You have subconsciously just <laughs> come up with the, the best segue that I think I've ever heard. Why does heard he need to program. fight it? He needs to save it. Okay. Jared Butler saves in, in weather. In league with Al Gore. <laughs> yeah. Okay, an inconvenient sequel then. Which arrives 11 years on from An Inconvenient Truth, which was the hugely influential documentary fronted by Al Gore. It went on to win an Oscar. It basically brought people up to speed around the world with climate change. And it was based on this seminar, kind of a slideshow thing that Al Gore had given um, in many, many different places around the world. And it was bringing it to a wider audience. Now, this film is um, brought in two new directors, Bonnie Cohen and John Schenk. And it follows Gore in 2015 and 2016 as he kind of reassesses where the climate change conversation has come to. He's still spreading the word. He's still lobbying and demanding action. He's still touring various uh, afflicted hotspots, literally hotspots in some cases, including an ice sheet that's melting away underneath his feet. Um, there's the it's, it's one of these sort of um, socially conscious documentaries. In the same way, actually, weirdly, as Step, which we talked about the other week, and also Blackfish, which is the my go-to example for these kind of films, where they work far better as pieces of advocacy than as actual um, pieces of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is the film inspiring? Yes, absolutely. Does it make me angry? Does it freak me out about the state of the, the world today? Yes, yes, yes. Is it socially useful? Of course it is. It's told me a lot about climate change, but I'm not entirely sure that it's done it in a way that necessarily needs to happen uh, in, in the cinema. Particularly with this one, which as, as a sequel, um, the first one was very, very much built around this one slideshow, this mm. presentation that Al Gore had given time and again. This is much more free form. So you have him making these uh, location visits to the ice sheets and also to the, uh, the streets of Miami, which are being flooded. It draws, one thing the film is very, very good at is drawing links between, so if this happens over here on the other side of the world, this will happen uh, in, in response. So you see the ice melting away, uh, water running into the ocean. Where does that water go? Here it is rising on the streets of Miami and causing trouble over there. So there's this sense of joining the dots that he does in in, in this uh, slightly long-form approach, free-form approach that he takes that couldn't maybe have, have been done um, quite so easily just in a written-through piece or something um, if he was going to you know, publish an article about it or a book. Yeah. There's this kind of joining the dots of all the things that's going on is, is done quite well. But he also detours off to reflect for a bit on the 2000 um, American-US presidential election, yeah. uh, which he, of course, ran against George W. Bush and lost. And he positions this as being a major tipping point in the wrong direction for US climate policy, which I think is probably fair, but also in the context of the film can feel uh, slightly egocentric because he's going back to this event 
17 years ago. Whereas actually, you know, the, the very recent US presidential election, you would think would be a much more pressing concern because obviously Donald Trump has disavowed climate change. He's pulling out of the Paris Accords that play an enormous part in the, 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 the third act of this film uh, because Al Gore is at the Paris Accords and he's doing a lot of lobbying there. Now, it's not going to be very convenient for this film to have to tear the thing down and then rebuild it around the Trump presidency. Mm. But the fact that it hasn't done, I mean, there are the occasional sort of information cards dropped in, maybe Trump sound bites. But the film feels very, very of a 2016 mindset. And unfortunately, because the conversation has moved on so far, so quickly when you're watching it, certainly I felt that there was almost another sequel yet to be made that would bring things up to speed now. So I think it's not going to necessarily have the same uh, effect that the original film did by by, by any uh, stretch, the same kind of impact on, on people's, uh, the general public consciousness about climate change. But for people who are interested in the subject, it will absolutely galvanise them and give them the latest bar charts and things that he's giving in his presentations and uh, keep you posted as to where things are right now. Well, in uh, our, Or not right now, right? Yeah. Maybe six months ago. The, um, the, we chatted to Al Gore last week on the show and one of the things I asked him about was in the... There's a scene where he goes into Trump Tower and he gets in the lift to go up to speak to to uh, President Trump and and then you don't hear anything and I was like, what happened? You know, I wanted to know what happens in those conversations. And they had to re-edit the film because of... Trump's decision to pull out of Paris because Yes, and that was in June, you know, that was two months ago. Yeah. So it's 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 been very unfortunate. It's not the film's fault that it feels yeah. slightly off the pace. But it does. What I liked about it was the way that it, it kind of went back to show you how committed he's been to this discussion though from 30 years ago. You know, this is something that he was talking about in Congress when he very first started, you know, in the Senate and and being an American politician, which I had no idea about, which you didn't get from that first film as well. No, you didn't. But I think this film is as much about Al Gore as it is about climate yeah. change, whereas the first film was very much, he is just the yeah. the messenger. Uh, we got an email here from Chris Matley in Lincoln, uh, who says, as a geography teacher on his summer holidays, I was prime audience for the sequel to An Inconvenient Truth. So I went along to an early screening of the sequel, which was prefaced with a live conversation with Al Gore himself. The success of An Inconvenient Truth uh, were to take essentially a slideshow and make the signs and detail engaging. The question is whether that trick could be pulled off again. Unfortunately, the answer for me was no. While Al Gore is passionate and the messages here is very important, the sequel accentuates all of the problems that the first film had in that it was all about Al. In the first film, the science was interrupted every so often with the little moment of, did you remember I used to be vice president? And in this film, it happens from the off and consistently throughout the feature. It felt like a one-man crusade to save the climate and the Paris Climate Treaty. While the last impassioned call to action was stirring, you could have watched the trailer and got the gist. As a teacher, I forced my kids to watch An Inconvenient Truth, but I'll be sticking to that rather than suggesting they see this. Chris in Lincoln. Yes, would completely agree. He actually cracks a joke during the film that he is a recovering politician trying yeah. to avoid a relapse. And in a in a sense, that's just not true. This is it is a very politically charged film, and he approaches the subject absolutely like a politician. Did you see Before the Flood, the Leonardo DiCaprio documentary? I didn't know. It's a it's a great watch as well, and kind of on that similar sort of vein. Uh, let's get TV movie of the week. It's a really good week. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, let's see what you reckon, Robbie's Devin Tory Bryant says lots of worthy contenders this week from Casablanca. And Labyrinth, you remind me of a man, to the lady in the van and Richard Ayoade's delightful submarine. But surely uh, we have to pick Joe Cornish's debut film, Attack the Block. I love that film. It's 
a rollicking sci-fi action romp. Dark, funny and well-constructedly. Timely as well, since it features Finn from Star Wars and the next Doctor. Let's not forget Nick Frost as well. That's certainly the one I'll be revisiting this weekend. Stephen Lockerbie, Attack the Block for me. Fantastic debut from Joe Cornish. Funny, scary and introduced me to John Boyega. And of course, the new Doctor, Jodie Whittaker. Emily Cranmer says, Submarine. Very good. Has sat resolutely on my must-watch list since it was released. It's very good. So I'd love to pick that. Let's be real. I'm just going to switch on Labyrinth for the uh, the bajillionth time. Mike Burst Whistle. I will be watching Lady in the Van with some Battenberg. One of those ones that I have a passing interest in, but never enough to get up and seek it out at the cinema. Uh, but Robbie will pick Bell. Nick Roundtree says Forbidden Planet obviously though everything or nothing is fascinating particularly the Lazenby stuff Grant Andrews looks like a really varied and fantastic week I haven't seen Submarine yet why not? And I need to, you do but I'd still pick Casablanca because there's just something magical and immortal about it Robbie is unpredictable and I give up why, I've heard that before. OK. <laughs> I, of course, look, if you've not seen Submarine, please see Submarine. But I'm surprised um, so many people chose The Lady in the Van, which I didn't expect to be um, a popular guess at all. Um, it is That's the one I'm going to go for. Really? The Lady in the Van, yeah, which wow. seems to be the first half of a Nicholas Heitner does uh, Alan Bennett double bill, because mm. I think it's followed directly by The History Boys. Great film. Um, but for me, this is it's an ad- adaptation of Alan Bennett's autobiographical play about this eccentric old woman who pitched up on his doorstep in a van and lived there for 15 years. It's a true story. And it's just, it's a great example of Alan Bennett's craft as a, a playwright, because the dialogue is performed. Alex Jennings plays Alan Bennett and, of course, Maggie Smith really in a kind of a defining late period Maggie Smith career role. You know, it's just nobody could have played this part as well as she does. But nobody writes parts like that for women of that age enough as well. Fortunately, Alan Bennett has done and it just completely suits her to a T. Alex Jennings as well, you know, he embodies Alan Bennett beautifully. And um, actually the film divides them off into two separate Alan Bennett's at one point so they can converse with each other while they're having a cup of tea in the, in the living room. And it's just beautifully done. It's a great, great example of how you can take something that is intrinsically stagey and make it intrinsically cinematic, just with total ease and without looking try hard at all. It's something Nicholas Heitner doesn't make many films, but when he does, he, he tends to use Alan Bennett's scripts and the two are just a, a match made in heaven, really. BBC Two, nine o'clock Saturday night uh, and Submarine is on uh, Sunday, ten past two in the morning. Really? I should get a better slot than that because it's so much deserves to be seen by more people. Uh, and Richard Ayoade, hurry up and make another film, please. Uh, right, shall we? T- what would you like to talk about? Let's talk about The Dark Tower, which Let's. is a very, very, very long in the making adaptation of a Stephen King novel or is it an adaptation of eight different Stephen King novels? It's kind of hard to tell even after you've seen it. The Dark Tower is a series of books that King started writing uh, in the 19, early 1980s. The Gunslinger, Volume 1, was published in 1982. Uh, the most recent one, uh, Number 8, was published in um, 2012. So it's been going on for a very, very long time. And it's this incredibly complex mythos that kind of threads together the real world and the various worlds in other Stephen King books with this around this enormous dark tower of the title, which is described at the start of the film as a tower that stands at the centre of the universe, protecting it from darkness, but it's said that the mind of a child can bring it down. So it kind of has this Death Star thermal exhaust port style weakness. This enormous edifice can be brought crashing down. And when it crashes down, the entire universe is thrown into jeopardy. 
And the person who wants to bring it crashing down is uh, the man in black, who's played by Matthew McConaughey. Now, he uh, is using this mind of a child technique. He has this eerie concentration camp style setup where a lot of children, he will harvest their screams by strapping them into these dentist chair style apparatus things. And, it's Monsters, Inc., sure. Well, this is the question. Is it Monsters, Inc.? Is it Star Wars? What's kind of going on? And what is what is going on is that this has been an incredibly difficult series for people to adapt. I think it was first um, tackled by J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof many, many years ago when they were working on Lost. They looked at different ways that they could possibly get this very, very complex involved mythos onto the screen. Ron Howard as well, I think, worked on it for five years or something. And the idea was going to be there was going to be a number of films, two or three interspersed with TV series that would somehow bring this enormous world to life. The world is, is is kind of on two tiers in the film. So you have what's called Keystone Earth, which is the world as we know it, and also uh, Midworld, which is the magical world in which most of the film takes place. And this is where the Dark Tower stands. And it's the world um, that Matthew McConaughey's Man in Black character calls home. And it's also home uh, to Idris Elba's character, who is the gunslinger Roland Deschain. And he's discovered by a young boy who wanders through this Narnia-like portal from the real world, uh, whose name's Jake Chambers. He's played by Tom Taylor, uh, a, a young actor who has dreams. Sorry, he's not a young actor. The young actor is called Tom Taylor. Yeah. Jake Chambers is this uh, troubled boy, very much in the Stephen King mould, who has these strange dreams and visions of this tower, of Matthew McConaughey's character at night. And he draws them down. And, you know, um, as a result of that, he attracts the attentions of some rather unsavoury forces. He escapes with them. Through uh, through the portal to meet Idris Elba's character, and they have this kind of surrogate father son relationship going on. As Idris Elba, who's the only person in this world who is capable of protecting the tower anymore, he's part of this weird old order of gunslinging knights. Now, this is, as you can tell, when I'm trying to explain this and waving my hands around the place, it's a very very complex and involved mythos. There's elements of Arthurian myth in it as well. Supposedly, the the guns that Idris Elba's character uses were forged from the remnants of Excalibur. The idea that you've got a man in black versus a gunslinger it's kind of tapping into western archetypes mm-hmm. but making them mythic and you know overblown and massive uh, there are also references to lots of different Stephen King films the psychic ability that Jake Chambers has is called The Shine which is obviously from The Shining uh, the, the portal number for Keystone Earth is 1408 which is from 1408 um, and there's there's another one as well. There's the um, the, the, the this there? Ab- abandoned <laughs> carry. Not that I spotted, but there there may be, there may well be something in there. There's this abandoned theme park as well that they discover with Pennywise on it, which is referring to it. And of course, there's a film adaptation of it coming very soon. You can probably tell from the way that I'm describing this that it is a complete mess, and the film basically just doesn't add up. What I think has happened, the director that eventually took this on was Nikolai Arcel, who made um, A Royal Affair, brilliant Danish period drama, yeah. uh, back in 2012, I think it was, and then went to Hollywood to take on a big budget project, and this is what it was. The, the process of adapting it has been so difficult that they have ended up, I think, because this is what's on screen, with a lot of scenes that simply don't connect together. You know, you have set pieces which you're watching them and you, th- you think, theoretically, this could be taking place in an interesting film, but it isn't. And then the move from one set piece to another, uh, there's just no continuity in it at all. Scenes just stop and then completely different scenes just start with no connective tissue between them. It's kind of like if you've ordered a washing machine and you open the box and inside there's the metal drum and a bit of door and maybe three feet of rubber hose and a personal liquid tap. And you're like, well, look, I can see what you're getting at. But not only is this not a washing machine, but it's inconceivable that you would even think it would be a washing machine. Anyone, you know, this is not what anybody wants. That's what you're watching in film form. And when you look even, you know, the characters are incredibly badly defined. But the reason for that is that it seems as if a lot of the dialogue 
has been re-recorded, new lines put in to try and stitch together a story from what they've got. A lot of the time, um, Matthew McConaughey and Idris Elba are talking with their backs to the camera. Sometimes in one scene that's shot over Matthew McConaughey's shoulder, I am certain that they have re-articulated his lips with CG to sync up to new dialogue that they've recorded just in order to fasten these scenes together. Now, oh you know, that, that's that's kind of the impression that I got from watching it. That may or may not be, be the case. Yeah. But the, the the fundamental truth is the film is not in a releasable state. It sounds like there's so much story there that what it could well have been is the ne- the thing that HBO should have done when Game of Thrones finishes in terms of giving it something that could breathe and you could actually, you know, glorify in these worlds and give them time to breathe and expand and explore sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, and th- th- there's... To the extent that the film does that, in the individual scenes, it is interesting. They find this sort of um, old, uh, old worldy village where there's people living who can help. The um, Idris Elba can kind of turn to them for help, and there's a mystic there who is able to draw out uh, Jake's uh, psychic abilities and things. And it's a kind of an interesting environment, but there's just no sense that it connects up to any other part of the story. And the, the fact is, you know, the alarm bells always start ringing when you have a final confrontation between two people standing at either end of a corridor who don't ever make any kind of physical contact and could easily be in studios on the other side of the planet. And that's basically how uh, this film shakes down. There's a sense that it has just been assembled from stuff that has been swept off the floor. Uh, right, let's get this uh, lovely email that came in from Darren. Thank you. To the Laird and Lady of the House. I love Stephen King's horror stories, but had somehow passed on the Dark Tower series of books. Despite hearing witterings of conflicted reviews, I resolved to experience Dark Tower in all its Dolby Atmos glory, hoping to be pleasantly surprised. Goodly performances, world-building and creative effects are intermittently let down by some wooden scene-munching and dodgy CGI later on. But this pales in comparison to the emotion and neutering hatchet job performed in the editing room. The director seems to have A... Uh, put no thought into how scenes should transition into each other to tell a story and B, decided that audiences will be confused as to which of the portal-joined worlds a character is in at any one time and therefore bludgeoned in exterior establishing shots, willy and indeed nilly. All of which robs the film of any narrative, thematic or emotional flow and leaves a disjointed stream of tension-free, non-sequiturs um, spurting in its wake. I hate to see Stephen King's story so poorly realised as a standalone set-up movie to the upcoming TV series, this could and should have been so much better. So I went and saw Dunkirk in 70mm IMAX for the fifth time and felt wonderfully restored. Darren, thank you. There is that sense throughout that the film is building towards something much, much bigger that it never gets to. The tower itself, you only ever see a very, very long distance. You know, the, the characters never reach the tower. There's never really an explanation beyond that starting up one that it's protecting the, the universe from monsters that live outside it that want to break in the idea of what the tower does is never developed beyond that and so it's very very difficult to understand what's at stake apart from everything but why is it at stake why does matthew mcconaughey want to destroy the universe nobody knows uh before we move on to the next film uh, marissa batston has been in touch hello substitutes love the show can i please politely point out that many of the people who dislike valerian went into that film fully understanding and loving the director's overall cinematic vision meaning we are fans but that doesn't mean we can't be disappointed just saying. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, right. From Dark Tower to everything, everything, everything. Not to be confused with the band. Yes. This say. is everything, everything based on a young adult novel of the same title by Nicola Yoon um, about a girl called Maddie Whitter who um, has a condition called severe combined immunodeficiency, which requires her to live in a sterile house. She hasn't been outside since she's been diagnosed. She describes the condition, although there's an issue with this, which we'll come to, as being like being allergic to everything. 
So anything in the outside world that she touches could cause her Im immense medical problems. Uh, the character is played by Aman Amanda St Stenberg, who was Rue in The Hunger Games. I don't know if you remember yeah. one of the incidental characters. Mm -hmm. Right, so she plays the, um, the lead girl who is trapped in the house, Maddie. And um, all this existence that's sealed away from the world uh, by our mother, who's Anika Noni Rose, who was the voice, um, the lead voice in uh, The Princess and the Frog, uh, is all very fine and well until next door a boy moves in called Ollie, who brings a breath of fresh air through this sealed off environment. And here they are uh, conversing for the first time. I like this room. Yeah. Um, my mom built it so that I could feel like I was outside. Does it work? Most days. I mean, what would happen if you went outside? Probably spontaneous combustion. We'll stay inside. Yeah, that's a good idea. Where would you go if you could? The ocean. The ocean? Why? Well, it covers 72% of the planet. And it's approximately three miles from here. And I've never seen it. It's a bad choice. Why? I'm assuming you can't swim. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> but I'd like to try. What's the condition called she's got? Severe combined immunodeficiency. Okay. Have you seen a 1976 film called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble that stars John Travolta and is directed by um, uh, uh, Rado Kleister, is it, who did Grease and Flight the Navigator? Is, I haven't seen it, but I know the one you mean. It's this the is same a condition. fantastic film. It's, it's a the great same film. Condition. Same thing. But you can see with this, it's given the young adult treatment. So she is basically the princess in the secluded tower. And here comes a dashing young, young knight to take her off and show the, show her the world. Now, look, thwarted young adult romance with medical overtones, uh, aspects to it, um, is the fault in our stars, basically. you know. But this is yeah. it, it takes that format and boils it down to its absolute most rudimentary components. So this kid that moves in next door, Ollie, is supposed to be a bad boy. His bad behaviour extends to wearing a black T-shirt. Other than that, he is a perfect, <laughs> perfect gentleman and someone who, you know, you'd be absolutely delighted for your daughter to fall for. Um, and so uh, the, the house itself as well is presented as being this very beautiful environment. It, and then, of course, there's an adventure that happens beyond that. It's, it, to me, it felt like, at first, you're sort of scrolling through an interior design Instagram account and then you're scrolling through a travel Instagram account. And that's <laughs> the level on which the film is kind of interested in engaging with this story. It's all about, you know, what can we, you know, beautiful things, nice little pencil case laid out on the table and all this mm. kind of stuff. And then later on, um, you know, the, the journey carries on outside the house and other things happen. What's really interesting is that I was with it on that superficial level to a point. Yeah. And then the film does something to do with, uh, with severe combined immunodeficiency, which to me completely cheapens everything that it's tried to be doing up until that point. It's difficult to explain without giving it away. But it's kind of like if it was about chronic fatigue syndrome, it turned out in the third act of the film that, oh, she was just being lazy all the time. Now, it's, it's not, that's not what happens. But the film asks you to invest an awful lot of emotion in Amanda Stenberg's character and then kind of shows you that the way in which you've been invested in her character is a total waste. And at that point, I just checked out of the film completely. Now, some people might see it as being a really exciting plot development. But for me, it was absolutely the final enormous kind of tree trunk sized nail driven in the coffin of this movie. Performances? Really, actually, generally quite bad. I think Amanda Stenberg is, um, she's very charismatic on screen. You know, she is someone who it's, it's fun to spend time with. And actually, there's some good chemistry between the two of them um, where there's a scene before they meet in person, which is in the scene that we heard in the clip. Mm. Uh, they text uh, on, online, you know, they exchange messages and stuff. And the, the film gets the tone of text conversations very, very right because it has it imagines them being together in this model of a diner, which um, Maddie has built in her house. 
um, and it has them sitting on opposite sides of the table chatting to each other. And it kind of, it's almost like young adult screwball in that the dialogue is very kind of sparky and it's zapping back and forward, you know, like WhatsApp group chats kind of mm. do. Uh, so it, it gets that kind of tone of the interaction very well. But unfortunately, beyond really those two, there's not a lot for good actors like Anika Only Rose to, to, to work with. Yeah. And the supporting characters who are not particularly numerous anyway, uh, there's a lot of sort of soap opera level gurning and simpering. Okay. Um, let's try and get one more in before we finish. Odyssey. Yes. Let's talk about Odyssey, which is, you remember a film uh, The Life Aquatic by mm-hmm. Wes Anderson in yeah. 2004 with Bill Murray as Steve Zissou, this eccentric oceanographer um, who... Um, He's seeking this sort of Melvillian revenge against Melvillian, 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 Melvillian revenge Melvillian, yeah. against uh, the Melvillian. jaguar shark that had, uh, had done something terrible to him in, yeah. in the past. Um, but he's also taking under his wing Owen Wilson's character, Ned Plimpton, who believes himself to be Steve Zissou's son. Now, Wes Anderson based this film on the life story of Jacques-Yves Cousteau, who was a French uh, undersea explorer. And... What the Odyssey is, is it's the real life biopic of Cousteau. But if you've seen The Life Aquatic, you will recognise elements from that story that are played out pretty much as they did in real life here. Now, I don't want to rake back over what we talked about with Final Portrait, but basically, if you take my review of that film and turn it inside out, that's my review of The Odyssey, because this is a film that spans 30 years in the life of Cousteau, from the, the, the original moment that he invents the Aqualung, all the way through to the late 1970s. And if you break it down, I think it's a two-hour-long film and it's spanning three decades. So that it means it has to cover a year every four minutes. And it really feels like it. It oh just God. hammers through, you know, taking in all these aspects of his life at an absolutely superficial level. Nothing yeah. is really being, you know, winkled into and, and, and dealt with that specificity that was so great in Final Portrait is just nowhere to be seen. Um, you have Lambert Wilson as Jacques Cousteau, uh, Audrey Tautou as his wife, Simone, um, from Amelie, of course, yeah. Pierre Nini, who was the mysterious stranger in France, the Francois Ozon film yeah. from earlier this year, he plays as uh, Cousteau's son, Philippe, and that's where the, the main kind of father-son tension is that was that was alluded to in The Life Aquatic as well. Now, with that cast, it's kind of hard to believe that the film would not be glamorous, particularly as a lot of it involves them going around on a boat in swimsuits, but it really is. It, it, it never kind of gets into the, the, the atmosphere of the period. It's so intent on moving from his business dealings one minute to his affairs the next, although the affairs are dealt with very, very bloodlessly and boringly. And, you know, particularly for a French film, this was incredibly disappointing. All of the relationships feel very transactional and superficial. The one way in which the film really hits home is that the cinematographer Matthias Bucard is great at shooting underwater. And you have these fantastic sequences of Cousteau's underwater films being made. Philippe was uh, Cousteau's cinematographer in a lot of his work. And there's a lovely sequence where um, Pierre Nini is underwater, sort of almost dancing with this humpback whale. He's got the camera and the whale is corkscrewing through this this kind of empty blue space. Mm. Pierre Nini has better chemistry with that whale than anyone else in the film. And that is absolutely the heart of, 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 of the problem with the Odyssey. You know, if you want to go and just read someone's Wikipedia entry translated into a film... That's the kind of film this is, but it gives you nothing of who the real man was and what made his achievement so impressive. I would suggest you go and watch The Big Blue instead by Luc Besson. <laughs> this is a Luc Besson stand convention in the studio now. It'd be sad to see the end of it. Anyway, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Robbie, your movie of the week. Final portrait. OK, thanks for listening. Next Friday then, two o'clock, Simon and Mark return with special guest Adam Driver, who's going to be talking about Logan Lucky. Thanks for having us for the last couple of weeks. There we go. That was this week's show. And there was one film that we didn't get around to talking about. It's a bit X-rated as well, really. It I'm is not sure slightly. This is how going to we be like 
talked about it on the radio. Tiptoeing through quicksand, yeah. this, this review. But we'll give it a go. It's The go. film is called The Untamed and is a profoundly strange and icky new film from a profoundly strange and icky director called Amat Escalante, who's Mexican. And he's made um, three films before. I have a feeling that the, the first of his films hasn't yet been released in the UK, but he made one called Heli, which was this incredibly graphically unpleasant story about a cartel kidnapping people. And then there was another one, the title of which I don't think I'm allowed to say on the radio. It was like Inglorious <clears throat> without the Inglorious. So okay. that's what it was called. This is a hard-hitting social realist story of marital breakdown and repressed sexuality um, and misogyny and internalised homophobia in central Mexico, which also happens to feature an alien sex octopus who lives in the forest. <laughs> And that's that's what the film is, basically. Um, the, this strange creature, which we discover, the, the opening shot, in fact, is of the meteorite this creature came down on, uh, has been adopted by this elderly couple, middle-aged couple, rather, who, who live in a cabin in the woods. And through its kind of strange alien activities, it's able to instil extreme delight, let's say, in people, well put, who, well in people who pay visits to this place. And one regular visitor is this uh, young lady called Veronica, who's played by an actress called Simone Buccio. And um, every time she visits the creature, um, the, the interactions become more robust, shall we say, mm -hmm. and um, the physical damage is sustained. And so she ends up going to the hospital to get this um, cut patched up, which she attributes to um, a dog. And she and the nurse, uh, Fabian, get talking at the hospital and she realises that he has... Um, a very difficult love life. He is having an affair with his sister's husband and this situation is incredibly toxic and the sister obviously has no idea. Uh, the relationship between him and the, the husband is very, very strained as well because the husband is you know, basically a homophobic brute who has his own desires repressed, packaged away uh, for these difficult you know, sessions that he has with his brother-in-law when they, they meet up at his house during the day. So she recommends to Fabian that he may like to pay visits to this cabin in the woods to experience pure pleasure and to, to get away from the miseries and the, the, the kind of peripheral woes mm -hmm. of having to search for this kind of pleasure in real life. Um, so he does and that sets of course the, this very difficult strange familial relationship on this crash course to complete chaos. Now the the society in which it's set, it's, it's, it's set in, in, in central Mexico which is quite conservative um, Catholic society and this idea that hang-ups about sexual activity and um, being able to pursue your heart's desire openly is absolutely a part of the film. And I believe that Escalante, when he was planning the film, the, the alien was something that came relatively late in the writing stage. It was originally going to be about news stories of people, um, terrible things happening to them, you know, being ostracised and what have you, yeah. um, because of who they were and because of their sexual identity. And the alien just became a strange way uh, to link these stories together. It obviously owes um, a lot to the Andrzej Zielowski film, um, possession, which involves a strange tentacle creature in a, in a bedroom yeah. doing weird things to people. Um, also, there's a whole strand of art that is dedicated to tentacle-based erotica, which we won't go into at the moment, but there's a, a Hokusai, famous Hokusai print called The Dream of the Fisherman's Wife, um, which kind of it, it sort of initiated art on that very bizarre and weird path. I, I kind of expected to get more out of this film than I did. And I think there's a really kind of strange um, ambiguity of tone, which is completely deliberate. It's, it, you know, it's very stern and meditative and it's not a romp. You know, you don't just yeah. sit down to, to be, so, ooh, look, ugh, what's going on here? It's quite placid. It's very placid, very, very methodically paced. But also because of what is happening in it, it's hard to take completely seriously. You know, just uh, you can't just absorb the story straight. And that dissonance is obviously the idea, but it means you kind of watch it mainly scratching your head, trying to find out what's going on. Now, I think possibly that's the idea. 
And it, because it's a film about irrational drives and fears and, you know, mm. phobias, it takes and the only kind of sensible approach to these subjects is an irrational one. And that's basically the route that the film takes. But for me, it's, it is totally a curio. And if, you know, if you're listening to this and thinking, this sounds like the kind of thing I'd enjoy, absolutely, by all means, check it out. But, you know, it is, it is what it is. It's very, very graphic. It's very, very odd. And it's for a very specific audience. <laughs> I um, don't ever watch it in public on a... Like I did, I was. I it's of, not one for the morning. It's not commute. one to watch on a bus or on a tube. I'll just add that. Uh, I was watching it whilst I was having lunch, and I had to almost like put my coat over my head and over my computer so that I could watch it without anyone seeing. Because from the off, it's very graphic. It's very hypnotic as well, though. You can't once you start watching it, you can't not watch it because you're intrigued by it. I think I was right. Anyway. No, of course. And there's a nice delineation as well between the kind of uber robust social realism of the story as it takes place in the city mm. and then the more weird magical bucolic stuff out in the forest out on the mountainsides you know where this cabin is and if yeah. you can see that Escalante shoots those environments completely differently and it would have been interesting to see you know a technique like that applied to the dark tower where you have that split between the you know we were talking about that earlier on the show that split between keystone earth the real world yeah. and then the mid world as well that was a film that was so fundamentally muddled and actually Escalante just purely through you know, camera language, he's, he's able to distinguish between the two. And it's as simple as just even, you know, using zooms when he's like the zoom lens, when he's in the countryside and not using zooms when he's in the city. And yeah. just that weird sort of slightly mesmeric, as you say, hypnotic mm -hmm. atmosphere to it is very cleverly built into the, the visual grammar of the film. But as I say, there was just something that I felt, that, you know, it, it resisted a kind of a deeper, more visceral engagement because of that really strange tonal clash. I really hope people go and see it. I hope that uh, Mark and Simon get some correspondence on it for next week's show. It's called The Untamed. Uh, and now it's time for... I'm not talking yet. Still dancing. Still dancing. One thing straight to DVD of the week. I'm gonna lie, this week's list length is oh, huge. However, amidst the bargain bin dread, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> there are a few exceptions. What do you think of the list? Quickly, Robbie, before I it's, choke. It's <laughs> it's very substantial. There's a lot of re-releases out this week for some reason. There's like a trilogy of uh, Jacques Becker films out, which I had no idea was on the, the way. That is, uh, the Cask Door is one of them, I think, which is a great film. <coughs> I'm done. There we go. I'm back in the room, everyone. <clears throat> Can breathe. It's huge list, but what are you going to choose? Uh, Matthew Walters, Manchurian Candidate for me. It's been a while. Seeing it on the list made me want to watch it immediately. I agree. Ian Johnson, I still haven't been able to catch Lady Macbeth. I think Robbie will opt for it. Oh, I might agree with you on that one. Um, Michelle Bizenden, Lady Macbeth, saw it at the weekend. What an astounding leading lady. Uh, Keith Coslett, their finest was quite watchable. No desire to own it, though. Catherine Todd, of the films I've seen, I'd love it to be their finest. Fantastic story, brilliant acting. And to top it off, Bill Nye singing. Perfect combination. Harry Rhodes Constable has to be Lady Macbeth. I can't wait to revisit one of the year's best films. 
Robbie, what will it be? Well, look, it kind of is Lady Macbeth, which is absolutely one of the year's best films, but the one that I was going to choose over it, purely because in the wake of Dunkirk, I'm fascinated to see how it plays, is Their Finest, which is the Lona Scharfig film about the Ministry of Information during the Second World War. Did you like this? I loved it, yeah. Yeah, I did It's a really, really delightful mm. film. And um, you have Gemma Arterton, who is a former ad copywriter, who is brought on board to help uh, write a propaganda film to kind of sell the war to uh, the British public and also to the Americans to try and coax them into, into becoming involved fighting with the Allies. Um, at a time when British morale is, 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 is very, very low, it's, it's happening uh, immediately after the Dunkirk rescue, which is why I was so interested to see it again. Um, obviously now with Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, you know, everyone has seen that film about three times now. Mm. Um, and, and rightly so, because it's wonderful. But having now that fresh appreciation of what was actually going on over there, to see the way in which the Ministry of Information kind of romanticises it, and this is all in the film, you know, it's very, very deliberately done. They're trying to make a film that makes it look like a plucky operation, you know, where yeah. the common man and the common woman rise up in order to, to fight for their country. I think would be really, really interesting. It's got a fantastic central performance by Gemma Arterton, uh, fantastic as well by Sam Claflin as well, yeah. the co-workers, who's this uh, slightly misogynist... Uh, in the bum, who <laughs> who comes to you know comes to Christ over the course of it, you know, yeah. is, is a much nicer person by the end of it. Also, the Bill Nye scene um, in which he sings "Wild yeah. Mountain Time" is just you know Bill Nye plays this incorrigible old ham. You'll be astonished to hear who is roped into playing a role in the film. Uh, he, he ends up playing the, the drunken uncle, which is a, a fall from his um, matinee idol days. Mm. But he kind of he becomes at peace with this new role in his life. He's come to a new stage in life. He's going to be playing different characters. And it is that broad Bill Nye comic routine, but there's more going on as well. And that singing scene in the pub where he sings to his fellow castmates is really quite beautiful. Yeah, there we go. Good choice. So uh, that's what it is. But also Lady Macbeth and also Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow, which is really good. And also the Jack Becker films, which are great too. No, no, no. Not multiple choices. Okay, they're fine. Not multiple choices. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Mark and Simon are back next week and they're joined by Adam Driver, who'll be talking about Logan Lucky.